So uh, my name's Rob, and uh, that's still apparently confusing for some people because a few people after the first service congratulated Doug on a good job in the service. <laughs> that's fine. We're used to that. By the way, I do actually wear socks, just to clarify that, but they're, they're underneath. Uh, so fun fact, this is the first time this weekend that I have ever preached on a weekend service of any kind. So you're getting the very beginnings of my uh, teaching. Um, so welcome to what could be the beginning. <laughs> welcome to either the beginning or the end of my career. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've said this the last two services, and I didn't intend to, but last night we were singing No Longer Slaves. And uh, I was struck, you know, if I, I felt, uh, I was about 17 when I felt like God was saying, you need to pursue some kind of pastoral ministry. And uh, I followed along that path, eventually ended up in seminary. And I uh, came down with a heart issue in, in seminary and started having panic attacks as a result of that. And so I kind of gave up on any idea of ever even being up in front of a group of people teaching. I didn't think that would be possible. And that wasn't much uh, too long ago. That was about three or four years ago. Um, so to be here now... It's just a testament to the work God's done and that he's faithful, so I would be wrong if I didn't say that. Before we start, I uh, just need everyone to smile. That was the best one yet. No, Everyone else, no one smiled or waved or did anything, so thank you. All right. Let me pray and then let's jump in. Lord, uh, thank you for this time and this group of people. Lord, this is such a, just a great church to be a part of and I'm so grateful to be able to serve alongside everyone here. Lord, I pray that you would um, transform us more and more into your image. Use your word to do that now. Um, Help me not to get in the way of that and um, just thank you for, for scripture and for its power in our lives. Bless this time, I pray in your name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, out of curiosity, I downloaded a book called uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And it's by an author named Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is a popular level astrophysicist. Probably some of you or many of you have already heard of him. He begins the book with a creation story. And noticeably absent from that story is any concept resembling God. For him, he's an agnostic. And the entire creation process leading up to this moment has no need for God. He explains the origin of the human species this way. A mere 65 million years ago, less than 2% of the Earth's past, a 10 trillion ton asteroid hit what is now the Yucatan Peninsula and obliterated more than 70% of Earth's flora and fauna, including all the famous outsized dinosaurs. Extinction. This ecological catastrophe enabled our mammal ancestors to fill freshly vacant niches rather than contribute to serve, continue to serve as hors d'oeuvres for T-Rex. One big brain branch of these mammals, that which we call primates, evolved a genus and species, Homo sapiens, with sufficient intelligence to invent methods and tools of science. 
and to deduce the origin and evolution of the universe. Now, Tyson goes on in the book, he ends the first chapter by saying this, what comes before the beginning? And for him, he's agnostic, but for him, he does not think that the answer is God, or at least it's too unclear to say anything like that. And I'm bringing this up because, not because I want to attack his worldview um, or critique it. I don't agree with it, but I want to ask a different question. If you do not have God, where does morality come from? Now, I'm not saying that people with different worldviews than Christianity are not moral and do not live moral lives. I know plenty of people that do so. But I am asking this. What is the basis or the foundation for their morality? One website that's dedicated to educating uh, everyone about the atheist worldview says this. Where do we get our morality? From the constant development of our culture, from the evolution of laws and guidelines that help us create a peaceful and prosperous society. We are who create our morality, and we pass it down to our children and grandchildren. That is why Muslim people can live prosperously in the U.S. alongside Baptists, Mormons, Hindus, and atheists. We have a a morality that supersedes all religions and is beholden to none. Here's how another one puts it. In its essentials, the human condition has not changed much, and it is the circumstances under which we live that influence the content of our norms, not divine commands, not God. Morality is an institution serving human needs, and the norms of the common morality will persist as long as there are humans around. Charles Darwin puts it this way in his book, The Descent of Man. Conscience then becomes, man's conscience then becomes the supreme judge and monitor. Nevertheless, the first foundation or origin of the moral sense lies in the social instincts, including sympathy. And these instincts, no doubt, were primarily gained, as in the case of lower animals, through natural selection. So, for Darwin and for atheists, Morality is biologically programmed into our being, into our nature. And it's refined through a process of natural selection and evolution. It's a social construct with the ultimate goal of of fostering prosperity and peace and happiness in society. For them, the ends to which morality seeks to achieve are self-evident and they don't need God. The beginning matters. Greatly. As Christians, we begin with God. We believe God existed before the beginning. We believe Genesis 1 1, which says that God created the heavens and the earth. We begin humanity with Genesis 1 26, that God formed man in his image. We begin the story of humanity with Genesis 3, that man rebelled in their desire to be like God. We begin with the Old Testament that God desired a holy people for himself, but they continued to rebel. We begin with the need for atonement, for sacrifice, for forgiveness. We begin with Christ and his final and ultimate sacrifice, extending forgiveness to all of us. We begin with the church, the holy people of God. We are the primary vehicle by which God intends to reveal himself to all the nations. And so when we, the church, ask, where does morality originate, we begin with the character of God. 
And two foundational aspects of God's character are emphasized in the passage that we're studying today. Our God is holy and our God is love. But before we jump into the passage, I want to do just a little bit of review. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and in chapters 1 through 3, he's beautifully described this new life, this new reality that we have in Christ. In chapter 4, and extending to the end of the book, he spells out the practical implications for how this should take shape in our lives as the new redeemed people of God. The basis for Paul's argument is the character of God. As people who have been welcomed into the family of God, our lives should reflect his character. God is creating a holy people for himself, the church. And so we are to be holy. But we are also God's representatives into the world. And to conduct ourselves in any manner that does not reflect the truth of his character is to bear false witness about God. And so in chapter 4, Paul begins to explain how we, the church, can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he tells us that we are to be unified because he, in the Trinity, is one, a unified whole. And so when we see that Christ is our head and we, the church, are the body, we are eyes and ears, we are tongues, toes, we each have a role to play and we play a part for the whole functioning of the body. And we are to build each other up and to edify each other. In verse 17, Paul turns his attention to the contrast between those who follow Christ and the Gentiles among whom they live. He calls the Gentile way of life false, old, darkened, calloused, hardened, ignorant, and futile. He calls the new life in Christ truth, renewed, righteous, holy, and fruitful. Last week, we looked at verses 25 through 32, which begin a series series of contrasting vices from which we are to flee and virtues, corresponding virtues, to which we are to pursue. The passage that we are going to study today, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the first verse, chapter 1, hinges on verse 32. So let's start reading there. And then we'll continue on to verse 5 of chapter (coughs) 5. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So you probably notice that that passage naturally breaks into two distinct sections, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 and 5. So I'm going to tackle each section separately, and then at the end, we'll bring the whole thing together. So let's start in verses 1 and 2. Sandwiched between verse 32 of chapter 4 and verse 2 of chapter uh, chapter 5, we are told 
that we are to be imitators of God. And the primary way that Paul intends for us to imitate God is in our love for other believers. The type of love that Paul is addressing here is a a higher form of love. It's a more virtuous, uh, more spiritual, more self-sacrificial form of love. The word he uses is the Greek word agape. It is the same word that he uses to describe love in the famous 1 Corinthians 13 chapter. It is the supreme virtue over all other virtues, much in the same way that the uh, old command or the the old commandment that the greatest commandment uh, is uh, the lo- love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself sums up the entire Mosaic law. First Corinthians thirteen thirteen attests to that when it says this: faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. When the translators translated the word agape into Uh, Latin, they used the word caritas. That's where we get the uh, English word charity. And for us, that word has actually lost most of its meaning. In the fullest sense of the word, what it means is love in the Christian sense. It's the sense that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's the sense that 1 John, the whole book, explains. In our passage today, Paul is emphasizing two aspects of this love. First, in verse 32, we see that this type of love is forgiving. And then in verse 2, we see that this love is expressed through self-sacrifice. And he is grounding both aspects of this love in the reality of our adoption as children of God. We are the beloved children of God. We are the objects of of God's sacrifice and forgiveness. So I would be remiss if I did not take a moment to say this to you. God loves you. And I say that because that is the hardest concept for me to grasp. For my entire life, I have never been able to fathom how God could really love me. I can't understand how he could love me in light of my sinfulness, my rejection of him, my disobedience, my lack of ability to trust him. But here's the thing, and I want to make this point clear, so listen closely. The degree to which I fail to understand and experience God's love is the degree to which I am incapable of expressing that love to other people. I'm going to put it positively so that it really drives home the degree to which I am able to understand and experience God's love is the degree to which I am able to express it to others. There's a story in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, that tells this story really well. But unfortunately, it tells it in the negative sense. You can turn there or we're going to have it on the screens and I'll read it. It says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I'm going to say this again. The degree to which I understand and experience God's love is the degree to which I am able to express it to others. See, we can't just experience God's love internally. We need to express it to others. We need to embody God's love to each other. And vice versa, we need each of us to express God's love to us. I need that. You need that. And that's what Paul is saying in these verses. When God's love penetrates as beloved children, you have no option but to walk in love, to be willing to love, to extend it to others. The true mark of how much you believe and have experienced the love of Christ through forgiveness and sacrifice is the degree to which you are willing to extend that love through forgiveness and sacrifice to others. But the reality is this, loving is really, really hard, and we all know that. See, the problem isn't that we don't understand love. The problem is that uh, we are often unwilling to love. Love is an act of the will. C.S. Lewis states it this way, Christian love is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. We are often unwilling to love others because it's really hard. When someone slanders you at work, it's really hard to love them in the sense of of the will, not the affections. When your spouse and you are in a fight, it's really hard to sacrifice for them. When your best friend betrays you, it's really hard to forgive that person. Now, Jesus wasn't unaware of that reality, but he doesn't caveat his commands with a bunch of exceptions. Instead, what he does is he he commands us to be relentless in forgiving others. He tells us to lay down our life, to sacrifice, even for our enemy. And he tells us to walk in love, to be willing to love. There's a rule of life that a lot of you have probably experienced. Uh, We all tend to believe that the affections come before the will. So this is how it looks. When I am unwilling to love someone, I have one of two responses. When, I'm, when, I'm, when I don't feel like it is probably the way to say it. When I don't feel like loving someone, this is what I do. My first impulse is either just not to extend love to that person or it's to sit and wait for my affection to grow for that person and then be willing to love them. But here's the rule, and it's really simple. We should act as if we do love that person. You should act on love for that person. As soon as you do this, 
you find something strange happen, you actually start to begin to love that person. Your affections begin to change. Your will can change your affections for a person. Now, this can also work in the opposite way. You can hate someone and treat them more cruelly and then begin to hate them more. The Germans began to to ill-treat the Jews because they hated them, but then they began to hate them more the more that they treated them poorly. You see, the more cruel you are, the more you hate, and the more you hate, the more cruel you are. It's a vicious cycle. Both love and hate increase in this compound nature. And that's why for us it is so important that we love each other and are willing to extend love to each other, to grow our affections for one another. That should be the distinguishing mark of us as Christians. Many people go around uh, extending love to the people that they like, but for Christians, we should begin to like people that we never thought that we would like because we are willing and, and are extending love to those people. For me, this happened um, on, a, on a trip that I was, uh, I wasn't forced to go on it. I signed up for it, uh, a missions trip when I was uh, younger. We went to Mexico when I was 16. And in our youth group, there were a lot of kids that I wasn't particularly interested in hanging out with. And I knew on that trip that that's all there was. That's the only people that were going to be there. And uh, so we got there, and it was funny. We start serving alongside each other. Uh, we were forced to sit around the campfire at night just chatting. And as I opened up to them and they opened up to me, I actually began to really like those kids. And funny enough, when I came back from the trip, uh, I actually found myself wanting to be friends with them and hang out with them and invested in their lives. And this is not something that's unique to the Christian life. You all have experienced this yourself, whether you've been uh, on a team, a sports team, or in an office environment where you're just put together with people that you would not normally associate with in life. And all of a sudden you find yourself growing to like that person in a way that you never would have thought possible. Now, I'm going to fit something in from this passage, uh, maybe awkwardly, we'll find out, because I didn't have enough time to fit everything in today. In, cha- in verse 3, it mentions that uh, greed should not be named among us. Now, when I was on that same trip, something else happened. I've always been aware, and we're all aware, that there are people with needs all over the world, people uh, in poverty or with emotional needs or, or whatever. But when I got to Mexico and I arrived at that orphanage, I started to interact with the kids and almost immediately my heart desired to give them whatever I could because I knew I had an abundance of certain resources and I saw where they lacked and I just wanted to provide for them. And that's the nature of the love that Paul is talking about here. It should express itself in generosity instead of greed. See, to extend love is to be generous. Not to be selfish, so selfish that we consume and store wealth for ourselves. It's to show concern for our brothers and sisters in need and to extend whatever resource we have to care for them. It's to desire their good just as much as we desire our own good. And this type of love is, at the nature, or is, is the nature and it's at the heart of the Christian life. We, in this room, are a large and distinct body of people. In this room are various uh, colors of skin, levels of wealth, levels of education, various hobbies, and various political views. But we 
are not to allow any of those things to become barriers to extending love to each other. In fact, when the world looks at us, the church, they are to see a distinct form of love that expresses itself in unity. And if you are unwilling to do this, then you must look at Christ and the barriers that he was willing to cross to extend love to you. Paul tells us in this passage that we are God's beloved children. And you must heed the command of Paul in these verses that we are to walk in love. We must be willing to love each other. You must, despite whatever affection you will, you feel, extend love to fellow believers. And you need to do this unconditionally with grace, forgiveness, patience, and sacrifice. And when we do that, the end of verse 2 tells us that it will be an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That idea comes from the Old Testament, and it's uh, conveying the idea that God is well-pleased with a sacrifice. It's the way he talks about the sacrifice that Jesus makes on our behalf. And so when we love each other, that is the, 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 uh, the pleasure that God takes, the same pleasure that he took in the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. So imagine your favorite smell or aroma. And for me, easily that's chocolate chip cookies. Not even a question. What Paul says in this passage is that when we love each other in the kind of unconditional, sacrificial, forgiving way, that is the fragrant aroma that God smells. He smells chocolate chip cookies. There you go. Okay, close second. Yeah. Bacon in chocolate chip cookies, even better. Uh, So, first two verses. God is love. And we are the objects of that love. In particular, he extends that love to us through, through forgiveness and self-sacrifice. When we extend the same type of love to each other, it becomes this fragrant aroma for God. Okay, let's move to verses 3 through 5. Sex is rampant in our culture, and that's certainly nothing new in the history of humanity. But what is new is the access with which we have to sexual content. The advent of phones, computers, and the Internet have made sexual content accessible to us within a matter of seconds. Here are some alarming stats for you to think about. Every second, 28,258 users are watching pornography on the Internet. 40 million American people regularly, regularly visit porn sites. 35%, 35% of all internet downloads are related to pornography. 20% of men admit to watching porn at work. Two and a half billion emails are exchanged with pornography every day. And here's a stat, it's horrible. There are 116,000 searches of child pornography every day. Along with this trend is an increasing level or at least a a popular awareness of sexual perversion. An article I read recently in the Daily Mail is about four years ago, told the story of Jodie Rose. Jodie is an Australian woman 
And she married what they call the Devil's Bridge. It's in France. There she is. This wedding was attended by 14 guests and was blessed by the mayor of a local town. Mizro's traveled the world for over a decade before deciding that this particular bridge was the one. She is quoted as saying that the Devil's Bridge is everything I could desire in a husband. And they have no clue how she decided that it had a gender. Neither do I. Sturdy, trustworthy, sensual, kind, and handsome. Mizros did what, whether she did this as a publicity stunt or not, raised awareness for a group of people that call themselves or consider themselves objectum sexuals. They are a type of people that uh, find themselves attracted to inanimate objects because of their geometry or function. In fact, there's an entire website that's dedicated to raising awareness for this particular sexual orientation. The beginning matters. If you begin with the premise that our existence is the product of a random and purposeless process, then you must believe or you will believe that sexual ethics is a social construct. So it should come as no surprise that as those who do not share our faith find influence in the culture through media or legislation or even the church, we see a shift in acceptable social behavior in our society. It also should not be surprising to you that as our culture, that our culture will continually uh, reject what they see as Victorian era ideals about sexuality. For them, the sexual appetite is not to be repressed. In fact, the sexual instinct should be set free. It should run wild. In many cases, this should go far beyond its intended function. Self-control in our culture, particularly now when applied to sexuality, is no longer a virtue. C.S. Lewis has this great illustration that I've always loved. Um, he says, you can fill a theater with, for a, a striptease act. And we know from the amount of strip clubs that exist around the world, or at least the country, that that's true. He says, imagine now you travel to a country where you could simply put, fill an arena and put a table on the stage with a covered plate and slowly begin to remove the cover so as to reveal right before the lights go out that it contained a piece of bacon or a filet mignon. You would think that something had gone terribly wrong with that country's appetite for food, would you not? Something has gone terribly wrong with the sexual instinct in America, and for that matter, all over the world. And most of it is increasingly categorized as normative behavior. Ephesus was no different. In fact, this was probably one of the, the biggest issues for Gentile converts to Christianity during that time period. Here is a list of the sexual practices of that time. Adultery, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, homosexuality, and then sacred sexual encounters in the temple. In fact, one commentator says that because Artemis was considered the goddess of fertility, orgies were commonly associated with her worship. In fact, Greco-Roman views of sexuality were often the, the, the primary object of the, of the Jews' disgust with the Gentiles. So much so that the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinical writings about, um, 
the, the Old Testament law prohibits a, a Jewish woman from being alone with a Gentile man because he could not be trusted sexually. So into that reality, Paul is commanding the Ephesian church not to let any such of this kind of behavior be named among them because that kind of conduct has no place and is completely inconsistent with their new identity as believers. He uses two terms in this passage in the Greek. The first one is porneia, and that's what's translated immorality in our translation. Other translations uh, say sexual immorality, because that's the idea that's in mind here. The second word is acatharsis, and that is where we translate impurity. These two terms together are intended to, to paint a picture of the breadth of sexual immorality that is prohibited, and it includes the corruption of the heart. There uh, are a laundry list of, of behaviors that we could, could establish that are prohibited, but it's better said this way. Any sexual activity outside the bounds of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. But Paul is not just addressing the conduct. He's also addressing what he considers talk of a, a sexual nature. You see that in verse 4. TV shows like The Office or my favorite TV show of all time, Arrested Development, know how to tell funny uh, turns of phrases that I've always found hilarious. They have a type of witty double entendre often. And some of it is fine, but then some of it is fairly crude and lewd, and that is at the heart of what Paul is talking about in this passage. The first noun is filthiness, and it should be understood to refer to various forms of sexual conduct and speech. The conduct in mind would include lewd gestures, uh, inappropriate touching, or some kind of disgusting practical joke. The second noun, it says silly talk. It could also be translated foolish talk. And while the context seems to narrow it to sexual uh, talk or talk of a sexual nature, uh, what it really, it's a broader term, and so we should allow it to be a broader term. The final noun is coarse jesting, and it's a type of lewd, witty joke that, that's often made at the expense of another person. Together, uh, these three nouns paint the picture of a kind of dirty, salacious, lewd, sexual conduct and speak, speech that ha- should have no place among us as the church. As 21st century Christians in America, we are not in a unique predicament. Ephesus was very similar to us. The cultural forces at large have rejected Christian sexual values, but we, the church, must not be swept away with the tide. Paul's words speak just as directly to that culture as they do to our time, and we must heed them. There is no there is to be no hint of sexual immorality in the church. For us, that would mean, and this is not exhaustive, there should be no mention of pornographic viewing, adultery, prostitution, or homosexuality. That means that any sexual activity outside the bounds of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. In verse 5, Paul refers back to these two verses 
And he's saying that the kind of behavior described has no place in the church. Those who continue to engage in such behavior with, with little remorse have no place or have no share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. The vices that Paul mentions in verse 5 no longer are in the abstract form. So if you look at verse 3, he says immorality or impurity or greed. But when you go down to verse 5, it's now the immoral or impure person or the covetous man. This probably speaks more to the identity of the person rather than the type of, uh, a type of activity that maybe a, a Christian has backslidden into. Paul recognizes that God is holy and that we are called to be holy, but he also recognizes that people screw up, that people, that believers do backslide into certain behaviors. In fact, that's, that's why he's writing this passage. For us, that is why recovery groups and accountability play such an important role. Those are groups where we should uh, extend love and grace to others. But we don't do that with, without uh, compromising on the commands that God has given us. Instead, what we're trying to do is we're trying to love someone into freedom from their sin. In our culture, addiction is a very, and this is true of all time, addiction is a very powerful force. In, fa- in, in particular for our time, uh, I know that pornographic addiction among men, but also among women is on the rise, is a, is a very powerful addiction. The stats I showed a few minute, minutes ago actually paint that picture pretty clearly, I think. We must seek to root out porn addiction amongst us. It has no place in the church, and it's destroying lives and marriages. If you read the research, it's destroying sexual desire. But for us, most importantly, it's destroying our witness in the culture. So this is what Paul is saying in verse 5. We, the church, must be holy. And because we are the people of God and share in the inheritance of the kingdom, we, and, and because those who practice whose identity is immorality or impurity or greed, and they do not share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. We, the people of God, who share in that inheritance, we should not allow any such behavior to be named among us. And any that does exist, we should fight to eliminate from amongst our midst. We should do this with love and grace and extend that to each other but we should hold each other accountable. So, verses 3 through 5, our God is holy and our, our culture rejects his design for sexuality. But we, his church, are to preserve a faithful witness in our sexual conduct because we are the people of God. So let's bring this entire passage together. The beginning matters. And we begin with a God who is love. 1 John 4, 8 and 16 tell us that our God is love. It's his essence. Love itself finds its origin in God. Here's what 1 John 4, 11 through 12 says. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We begin with a God whose very essence is love, the place in which it finds its origin. 
The other day, I was driving home. I pulled up to a four-way stop. The car on my right was making a left-hand turn across traffic. The car on my left had the right-of-way and was going straight. As soon as the car came out and went left, this guy saw what was happening, pulled his car into the intersection, stopped, and held out his middle finger to make sure that the guy turning left saw what had happened. Our culture is broken, and we need love. We need God's love, and we need to be the shining example of that love in the culture. But we also begin with a God who is holy, and he has created and designed sex with purpose and function. Its function is procreation, but it's also intended to be pleasurable and enjoyed within the confines of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. The world is ruled by darkness and rejects God. So we should not be surprised that they, in their sexual conduct, flee the bounds of the purpose and design that he intended for sex. But we, the church, are called to preserve a faithful witness, both through our sexual conduct and speech. We are to to provide a beautiful and truthful view of sexuality that speaks to its intended design and function. Every human knows this, but many suppress it. In fact, scripture tells us that many suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Many in our culture have been fed a steady diet of alternative views about sexuality. They've been fed a, a counterfeit or a false view of sex that feeds our unrighteous desires. Many of you are going to disagree with this example, but I'm going to do it because you're not going to forget it. Uh, I was reminded of this uh, a few days ago. I heard a speaker say in a lecture one time that there's a study that says that kids nowadays cannot appreciate the taste of real mac and cheese because they only like Kraft mac and cheese. Now, I know certain people actually think Kraft mac and cheese is real mac and cheese, and you're wrong, but... That has nothing to do with my illustration. Well, actually it does. It does. You are wrong. See, our culture has been fed a steady diet of Kraft mac and cheese views about sexuality. We, the church, are to provide a true form of mac and cheese to our culture about sexuality. And most likely, it's made with Tillamook cheese. When it comes to sexuality, we, the church, are to be beacons of light. We are to call home wayward ships. Here's the point. We don't just begin with a God who is holy or who in his very essence is love. We begin with a God who demonstrates his character. And so when he calls us to be holy and we fail, he condescends to us in the form of Jesus Christ and he lives a sinless and holy life. And he demonstrates his love to us by sacrificing himself and willingly enduring the torture and shame of the cross. Through that act, we, the church, receive unconditional forgiveness. That was the greatest act, the greatest demonstration of love. We, the church, are the objects of that love. And so, when our God tells us, his holy people, to be like him in our conduct, holy in our conduct, and to love as he loved, he has provided the ultimate example. We then must be imitators.
Let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we are um, so grateful for the love that you've extended to us. It's really hard to grasp. It's really hard to fathom. But I pray that you would drive that love deep within us. I pray that that would be driven deep within us in the ways that we love each other, the ways that we extend love to each other. I pray that we would fill ourselves with your love so that we would embody that, not just to the other believers, but that the world would see the kind of love that you have given to us. I pray that we would seek to be holy people, especially as it comes to our sexual conduct, and that we would not be greedy, that we would be generous. Help us to present a true and beautiful view of your intended design and function. Lord, we love you so much. We are so grateful that you are our God and that we can trust you and live for you. Be with us, we pray in your name. Amen.